Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I am your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. How you doing, Matt? Oh, I'm good. It is uh, another beautiful fall-ish uh, night here and uh, a good Sunday. The Cowboys won, which makes me happy. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good day. It's a Max good- Verstappen took his second world championship victory that is true he did uh and what is possibly the most boring anticlimactic way uh, to make that happen yeah Yeah. (laughs) uh constant rain delays red flags etc but you know what uh i think it is uh undisputed at this point that uh red bull at least uh and max in particular uh really didn't have anyone even close to second place this time around and uh, they ran away is, with the thing. They drove away with the thing. They, they did. They did very much drive away with the thing. Um, and you know, the Cowboys are somehow uh, with a backup quarterback, just running and uh, running away with the NFC East right right now. Which uh, you know, it's not saying much in general because the NFC East sucks. But um, they're winning, which means that I'm happy. So. That's all that matters. Um, so all of that contributes to a great Sunday. Uh, girlfriend moved into a new apartment uh, this weekend as well. So I'm tired. And I realized the closer I get to 30, the more uh, heavy lifting that I do. Like my back decides it doesn't love that uh, anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so sore, tired, but just overall in a, in, in a good mood. It was, uh, it was a good weekend. And uh, we're here to do what is potentially our favorite thing uh which is talk about zelda so which we did play today i mean this whole thing we're talking about tonight you and i played it today very recently it's very fresh on the mind Uh, about six hours ago yep roughly yep that sounds about right so uh yeah we're gonna have a lot of really interesting conversation we're gonna get into that uh lord knows matt and i have some feelings you know who else has got feelings about zelda 2 matt I do know quite a few people that have feelings about Zelda 2. He may be the only person I know that has overwhelmingly positive feelings about Zelda 2. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome onto the show tonight, returning for his second appearance, the number one Zelda 2 fanboy, Josh from Zelda Universe. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. We are glad to have you here. I think that, uh, look, this this chunk of game that we're covering uh, in the in the back half of season six uh, this is your time, really, is, is kind of what everyone has told us. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it only made sense for uh, for you to be our first guest on the Zelda 2 section of the show. Um, you know, obviously, because you just love the hell out of it. <laughs> but also, uh, you were instrumental in the planning um, and the organization of our, you know, our whole path through this game. Because Matt and I, we were we were lost in the woods very much so so um yeah yeah very happy to have you on to talk about it i mean this is kind of your zelda game right yeah i mean it's like i'm not the only big fan of this game right like i actually know i'm not convinced of that uh, i actually know multiple other people at zelda universe who actually really like the game there are dozens of uh, you but, but yes, exactly. There's dozens of us um and, and i think i think if you talk to people who actually uh grew up with nes's they 
don't have such uh, the same negative feelings that a lot of people who tried to pick it up later have. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like I do very much like it. It's not my favorite in the whole series or anything, but uh, it is high on my list, and uh, and I'm always excited to to play it and and talk about it. Like I, I play it multiple times a year at this point. So that leads me into a question of like, what is your favorite thing about the game. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Cause I was going to ask something similar, but I want to, I want to get as much, (laughs) I want to get as much preamble out of the way before we dive into Josh's thoughts on this game specifically. Right. I was going to go with just like general thoughts. Well, but right. Cause I don't want to take up time about stuff. We're going to talk about in the episode. No, no, not that, not that, not that. But like, are you pod splaining to me right now? Just a little bit, but I had a I had a flow in which I was going to do this. So Fine. may I? You, whatever. Cool. You go ahead. Okay. So Josh, we definitely want to talk a little bit more about your history with this game specifically, and you know why it means so much to you here in just a second. Before we start talking about the chunk of game we played today, uh, before we do that, I wanted to ask you real quick. You know, just how are things going with you? I'm sure that um, in your capacity with Zelda Universe, things are kind of starting to heat up a little bit. Um, last time we had spoken to you, I think was previous to uh, was previous to the Nintendo Direct where we got the tears of the kingdom reveal. And so obviously, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was because I think we, we that feels like so long ago now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, cause I think it wasn't that we asked you like what you thought the odds were of us even like getting I, that. Or, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. And we settled on 50, uh, 50. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, like, yeah, stuff at Zelda universe has absolutely picked up. Um, like I've, We've had to kind of just, uh, we've been kind of running on fumes for a while. It's hard to keep people motivated when nothing's happening. (laughs) Um, And especially when you have like a bunch of like, uh, even though we're like hyping ourselves up, right? It's like when you think, oh, it's got to show up. It's going to be at the Game Awards and it's going to happen. And then it doesn't show up. And it's, well, they're going to have a direct in January and it'll happen. And then it doesn't happen. And then the game gets delayed one random morning on Twitter. (laughs) And then it's got to show up at E3 and Nintendo is a no show at E3. And uh, so when all that happens, it it really did just take a toll on the morale of the team. Uh, But now that we have something, uh, I've been in so many meetings and uh, just all kinds of planning going on to get excited uh, about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just more personally, like I've just been keeping busy. Uh, I spent the whole weekend or a bunch of the weekend actually with another ZU team member who came to visit and we ran around and looked at video game stores and such. Nice. So it's been a good weekend. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely as far as Tears of the Kingdom goes, it sort of feels like now the floodgates have like somewhat opened a little bit. I know the Discord, um, our Discord has been talking a lot about that. You know, we get the trailer and then we start getting life-sized statues of Tears of the Kingdom Link and <laughs> yeah. like all, all kinds of stuff. It's it's neat. It's a, it's a very exciting time. And the fact that Nintendo is actually like putting marketing energy into this at this point. Um, is really fun yeah it's really fun and i think it should definitely assuage people's fears um who thought maybe even though we had a firm release date given as part of the nintendo direct that like a delay might still come and i personally think that that's um unlikely at this point i feel like yeah i i really think the game was i think the game was actually intended to come out a long time ago and just real life situations and the pandemic and 
just everything that's happened yeah, um, yeah. Yep. has just slowed things down and that it's probably it's probably been internally delayed multiple times already. It's almost I, like I think we, May is the date. Yeah, it's almost like we've been undergoing a global phenomenon of unprecedented proportion for the last two and a half, three ish years. Uh, and that has a tendency to cause some issues in production schedules, supply chains, you know, general disruption to everyday life. So, you know, huh, maybe yeah. if that has anything to do with it. Well, the idea of the Zelda team having two and a half years to polish a game sounds pretty exciting. So absolutely sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah, even even if they're at 50 percent of their usual productivity, <laughs> that, that's still a lot of polishing time. Yeah. So cool. Obviously, it's all very exciting stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, um, just a reminder to everybody to be checking ZU as often as uh, as often as you can. Make that one of your social media and online stops because it's uh, you know the the uh, material is going to be coming hard and fast as we um, as we kind of lead up to May and the release of that game. So definitely a lot to be excited about there. Um, so now that we've kind of gotten and one thing you might even be excited about is uh, the possibility of a Twilight Princess manga dub that oh they might do on their YouTube channel <laughs> at some point sometime. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-oh. Had to had to throw that little inside joke there. Dear Lord. Uh, that was uh I just always remember that ever since we talked about it on the Discord that one day, Josh. I'm just like, it's always in the back of my mind now. I love that uh I love that people want you to do that so badly that they're willing to drop comments about it on completely unrelated videos that we post on your on your channel. Yeah, like they're even <laughs> commenting on our videos, like about Adventure of Link and uh, Le- Legend of Zelda. Like, can't wait for the Twilight Princess manga dub. And we're like, dude. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Zelda fans are very passionate. That is. And it's that is a good thing. That is absolutely true. Uh, Something like what what did Leslie Nope say? Uh, She's glad to live in a town of passionate people uh, in that the one episode where they're doing the uh, the time capsule. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Living in a town of people who care too much is better than living (laughs) in a town of people who don't care at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as two people who run a podcast geared towards passionate Zelda fans. uh, Yeah, this is a good thing and we love it. So (laughs) please continue to be passionate. Yes, we would really appreciate that. Uh, Josh, glad to know that things are going good with you. Um, I would love to talk just a little bit more before we get into the Sacred Realms rundown about your history with Zelda 2. I know, you know, obviously whenever we have a new guest on, we've got that rundown that we do, which is like, hey, what have you played? And what was your favorite? And all that whole thing. And we did that with you last time you were on. But I, I feel like um, – <clears throat> I feel like Zelda 2 is such a unique game in this series, and it's so rare, I I have found, to find somebody who is really willing to enthusiastically go to bat for it. I mean, I feel like there's a fair amount of people out there who would say, you know, oh, yeah, I like it well enough. It's got its merits, or there's an equally fair amount of people who really, you know, don't like it much at all and don't want anything to do with it. Um, And, you know... You were you were very positive on it, so um, I would love for you to kind of give us the the pitch on why you feel that Zelda Two is a strong game and a strong Zelda game. So my history with the game is uh, not as long as you might expect for the amount of love I have for it. Um, I, I think I've said in or maybe even last time I was on here, but definitely on the Discord and in multiple contexts lately, that uh, playing or enjoying games that came out in an era before you started gaming 
is an acquired taste. Uh, and as much as I like these NES games now, they were an acquired taste for me. Uh, I did not have an NES. Uh, I had a Super NES first. Uh, I actually had a Super NES and then an N64 and then an NES. Gotcha. Uh, just because I had gotten into gaming so much. Uh, and But it was even then, it was just kind of a, a novelty, like collectible thing. Uh, I didn't really appreciate the games so much. Uh, and I did not like Zelda 2 when I had that, when I was uh, 12. Um, like I, I was pretty firmly on the, this is a bad Zelda game train. Um, but, uh, it wasn't until it was 2014. I had finished every other Zelda game and I finally sat down. I was like, this is the only one I haven't finished. I gotta, I gotta finish it. You know, I will, I played on the 3ds, which had save states, no rewind. <laughs> and I was like, if I have to save state my whole way through this game, I'm at least going to make the credits roll and say that I've played them all. Uh, and that's what I did, uh, which is part of why I advocate for other people to do the same thing. So like, I'm all in favor of save states and rewind uh, because what happened is I, I had to replay the game essentially over and over again. Uh, and I got good at it. <laughs> uh, and by the end of the game, I wasn't having to use save states before every single enemy anymore. <laughs> Um, and I was actually really having fun with it, uh, once I had started to learn it for real. Uh, and when I finished it, I just wanted to play it again. Uh, but at the time I was actually going through a sort of, a sort of self marathon that I never actually totally finished where I was playing through the whole series in order. Uh, and, uh, and so I didn't play it immediately again, but uh, when I did pick it up again, where did you fall off hmm? in that? in that whole list i think it was like majora's mask like i didn't get super super far but it was a fun thing to talk about on twitter (laughs) um and uh but no when i got back to it i decided to do it without the save states um and then finished it again and now i finish it every year over and over again um you know as far as like what i see in it it's just it's fun like it just it's a game that took practice and yeah it's a challenge but uh you know I'll, i could compare it to something more modern and say like elden ring is like well elden ring is is difficult but if you just practice you get good at it and and then it's fun uh and it doesn't matter if you die over and over again you you understand why you died and and it's fun um uh and beyond that it's just been me picking up more and more nes games and and having more perspective in when, when all I had played was the three Super Mario Brothers games and the two Zelda games and like a Final Fantasy or Excite Bike. Like I didn't have a lot of NES experience, but when you start picking up Castlevania, Ninja Gaiden, and other platformers from the era that era, you see that a lot of the things that were problems of Zelda Two are also problems in all the other games. <laughs> Uh, and it starts to look more like a technical limitation rather than like bad game design. Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that like, especially as we've been talking about these eight bit games, um, we've brought, we've brought it up as a point of speculation about several 
pain points we had with both the last game and this one as us kind of, you know, speculating that, oh, maybe this happened due to technical limitations or whatever, as opposed to an intentional design choice. And I think that um, especially after our conversation with Max, when we were doing the rank and recap for The Legend of Zelda, um, I, I think kind of he was kind of turning us on to the idea that maybe that was the case a little bit less often than we were thinking it was in that in that in some cases you know these were like intentional game design choices and you know obviously they are not um you know they're not handling um or, or at least modern game design would choose to tackle whatever xyz solution differently you know um things have definitely evolved since then but um but yeah definitely definitely can't always be put down to a technical limitation of the hardware or whatever Uh, right and i like um i remember max saying that and and sure there's a, a line in there somewhere um but but i do think even if it's not a technical limitation maybe it's a uh in some ways a uh a knowledge limitation where a lot of games, a lot of NES games actually are ports of arcade games, right? Uh, which in a lot of ways are just designed to eat your quarters. Uh, yeah. And the NES ports, there's no quarters, but they're still designed the same way. Yeah. There's no saving in your in your shoot 'em up game, right? You have to just start over every time and and hit continue. Um, and so you have stuff like that where just the conventions had not been established yet, and there's also just a lot of experimentation. And maybe not an understanding exactly mm-hmm. of what made a game frustrating or not yeah. to the same extent that we know now. Yeah, I think the language of game design was still very much being written when both of these two games were being made. And um, I think it, it's interesting because to your point about the conventions of arcade style games kind of bleeding into console gaming in these in these early years, um, you know, this Zelda game has got a mechanic in it that no other Zelda game has um, that is straight out of an, an, of an straight out of an arcade cabinet. And that is lives, you know, like three lives. And then you get a game over. That's not even something the original legend of Zelda had. Um, And I think to me that still remains uh, to be one of the weirdest feeling things that this game has for me in terms of like the things that I expect a Zelda game to have, you know, Um, every time I see my life counter drop in this game, uh, I always kind of like have a flash sideways to Mario, you know, it's, it feels right. weird every time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. Um, you know, the other thing that I don't think specifically really applies to Zelda two, we talk about arcade games, uh, but in that era, also the late eighties, early nineties, uh, there was kind of a, a, a bit of a side controversy over like, video game rentals uh and people renting a game and then finishing it and then they don't have to buy it oh gotcha uh and there are some developers that did actively make games harder or otherwise do something to make it so you couldn't do that to like discourage renting Uh, i really don't think that applies to zelda 2 in particular but there was stuff like that where now we go back and we're like why is this so frustrating or why is this so hard when it just doesn't need to be uh and sometimes there are business answers to those questions yeah it makes me wonder if uh if the super star wars games were designed with that particular (laughs) 
issue in mind. I mean, those I love those games. Oh, they're amazing. You can, you can get around all of those limitations if you just know the debug password to put it on the title screen. Oh yeah, I bet. I mean, I I love those games very much too. I played them all quite a lot when I was younger, and I went back and tried to give them another go a few years ago, and they kicked my ass. They are so mm-hmm. hard. Yep. I actually saw them at a game store today. I almost bought Super Return of the Jedi. <laughs> ah, that one was so amazing. Ah, uh, geez. I wish that I wish that somebody would like this. This is the last rabbit trail we're going to take before we move on. But I wish that somebody would go and do like a comic strip series of like the Star Wars trilogy as shown in the Super Star Wars games. You know, <laughs> where it's like it's like the lead up to Jabba's palace instead of like R two and C three PO just like moseying up there. It's like it's Luke che- platforming. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. it's Chewbacca platforming through the cliffs while giant lizards shoot fireballs at him, and then he has to like <laughs> then he then the the droid in the door is like the size of the Death Star and is trying to crush you, and it's like ah oh, geez, whew. That's a that's a very different version of Star Wars there, but it could be an interesting one. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. So I, one question I had, Josh, for you is like, what is what is an aspect of Adventure of Link that you? That is, this is a two parter question. What is an aspect of Adventure of Link that you have seen successfully carried over into future Zelda titles? And what is an aspect of Adventure of Link that you wish would be carried over into future Zelda titles? All right. There are multiple aspects uh, of Zelda 2 that are actually carried over a lot more than people realize. Uh, I think I said something similar in the Discord the other day, but uh, I kind of view Zelda and Zelda 2 almost as like two sides of like the foundation of modern Zelda. The Legend of Zelda is very focused on the exploration, the dungeon delving, finding items. Uh, But you all mentioned repeatedly, why do these bosses fall over in one hit? Um, And Zelda 2 is the opposite of that. Uh, It is far less focused on exploration. There is still some of that and a little bit of that discovery and finding a little secret area kind of thing, but it's very combat heavy. Uh, And... Like the combat of Zelda of Zelda Two, uh, really carried over and inspired some of how Ocarina of Time was approached. Uh, there's actually some prototype footage that uh, quote Zelda Three uh, or something like that was at one point a side scroller, uh, and, and so even even carrying it now where we have sword skills, which uh, maybe that's a little bit of a spoiler for you all, but like the abilities you have now are not the only abilities in the game. You do get more mobility, uh, and, and better combat stuff, uh, both for your sword and for magic. Uh, but this is the first Zelda game with towns. It's the first Zelda game with magic other than like the magic wand. Uh, it is the first Zelda game with sword skills. Uh, and we see those things repeated and repeated now. Uh, you know the idea that Link can uh, can do something other than just his repeated combo swing, uh, where like Twilight Princess took it to a whole other level and gave you like input commands you had to do. Uh, the Wind Waker has a parry system, like kind of Breath of the Wild has that kind of parry system and uh, quick time dodge, uh, and so this is the beginning of that, um, and so you do see a lot of this stuff carried over more than people realize. Uh, 
there's also an item we're going to talk about today that was like the first appearance of this item, and now it's a staple of the series. <laughs> um, as far as something that I want to see uh, that we may end up talking about some more uh, later, um, I grew up in the 90s era video games, and I love these overworlds. Um, they are one of my favorite things about RPGs of that era. Uh, developers built like entire continents and planets worth, and then would like give you an airship where you can fly around the whole thing and like see a whole planet. And you don't really get that nowadays. Uh, you know, they build something really big and beautiful like Breath of the Wild, where you see everything at scale at the, at the same scale. But, uh, it, because of that scale, you don't really get like a whole planet most of the time. Like there are like there's things like No Man's Sky, right? Uh, that that just thrive off of uh, procedurally generating stuff like that. Uh, but you get a lot more. Oh, what's the word? You get like a, a finely crafted little world most of the time, uh, which is really great. And a lot of this is just nostalgia for me. I'm actually shocked that uh, indie developers have not started doing this more yet <laughs> uh, and just kind of bringing it back a little more. Yeah. There's a few. Um, but like indie developers tend to kind of go through the eras. You can kind of tell which games they grew up with a lot of times because they start remaking the games from their childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but I, I love these scaled down overworlds. Uh, but I grew up playing so many games that had them. Yeah, that, and I, I, I for think me, it's just a nostalgia thing. I know that um, I know that we got into this a little bit on the Discord last uh, last week, and we had some back and forth. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we had some back and forth about this kind of like uh, this method of having an overworld that is much more kind of zoomed out and a lot less interactive on a moment to moment basis than. Uh, than a traditional Zelda top-down overworld is, or any Zelda overworld, really. And I think, to me, this is the thing that I'm still just not, like, jazzed about with this game. I Like, like I, I understand. I, I was surprised when you said you had never played a game with one before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, other than Pokemon, right? Which is the only, which is what we kept saying last well, week. And, but even Pokemon and, yeah, is, you, is different. You yeah. kept saying that, and it, and I was like, what do they mean by that? What is that? Because to me, that's not the same thing. Well, um, so I think I think where Matt's getting the Pokemon connection a lot is in the way that, like, as you're navigating through certain types of terrain, you have randomized encounters that transition you right. to like a battle situation. Right. But but even even Pokemon is much more like, um, you know, there's there's no there's no zoom out in Pokemon. Really, there's no. Like in Zelda 2, there are two levels of of interaction with the game. There's the combat, uh, the combat enabled side scrolling areas and also towns. And then anytime you're not in one of those, you get zoomed out into this like <laughs> eagle's eye view of Hyrule in which like you're you're your little link sprite and uh, you're either like you're either getting into a random field encounter or you have a limited set of options that you can do like with the hammer you can choose to break a rock or whatever but i I think to me like i'm not saying that this is not a i'm not saying that this is a game design decision that i dislike 
I like on paper, I think that I can see a world in which a game that I really enjoy does do this kind of thing. It's just for me. I mean, Max said it best in the in the rank and recap episode for The Legend of Zelda, where he considered Hyrule to be the best character of that game. And um, mm-hmm. and that kind of opened up this kind of line of discussion about how Hyrule really is a character of its own throughout the entire series. And I think that's very true. Uh, and I think that so far for me, um, on like following that line of conversation, this iteration of Hyrule feels like it has less character to me. And that's something I'm having a hard time getting over. Uh, it, it probably does. Uh, it probably has more than you realize so far, but it probably does have less than you're expecting. That's fair. We're, we're uh, still early days on this game. Uh, so there, there is time. Right. And I will say that there uh, is something, uh, there is something that I did find in our play session this week that actually I was pretty jazzed about. And we'll get into that mm-hmm. later. But but that did take place in the overworld area. And so uh, yet. Yeah, I'm not saying that uh, I think it's an irredeemable function and it's entirely possible that I might come around on it a little bit. But for right now, I'm, I'm having a yeah. kind of a hard time getting past it. Uh, Max might be able to maybe Max has some uh, actual quotes to back me up or completely refute me on this. But after we talked about it, I started doing a little bit of research um, to see if by chance I could find some kind of reasoning for this of like, why did they make a change? Like, uh, aside from that, I believe the two games more or less have completely different teams. Um, right. But but something we're not really used to anymore because we've waited like six years for a new Zelda game now. Right. uh, Is that these two games are much closer together. Uh, By the time The Legend of Zelda came to the United States, Zelda 2 was already out in Japan and they already knew it was going to come out in the States. Um, like they already knew the legend of Zelda was a series. Uh, and, uh, so the legend of Zelda came out in February of 86 in Japan. And, uh, the adventure of link came out in January of 87. That's wild. In between those, like right in the middle, uh, dragon quest came out in Japan. Uh, and I know you've probably never played it, uh, but it has this overworld. Uh, it's an early RPG that had this kind of top-down, eagle's eye overworld and little towns you went into. It's not side-scrolling, it's all top-down, but it's essentially like combining the Zelda 2 overworld with the Zelda 1 gameplay, right? Uh, plus, like, turn-based Pokemon-style battles. Uh, and that game is huge in Japan. Like, absolutely huge. Uh, it would not surprise me at all to learn that the Zelda team or any team was inspired by the success of Dragon Quest and wanted to mimic any part of it. Um, and uh, Dragon Quest essentially is basically the foundation of a lot of turn-based JRPGs um, and inspired like a whole decade of games. Um, and that's you see that repeated in a lot of the games people talk about from the Super NES and PlayStation era. Final Fantasy. I mean, like Final Fantasy VII has this overworld. I mean, Chrono Trigger has this overworld. Uh, it did start to taper off as we got more technology and they could build the worlds at bigger scale. 
but even into the GameCube era, there were still prominent RPGs using this. Well, those are all... They just made them 3D. Yeah, <laughs> those are all incredibly classic, incredibly beloved games that Matt and I have no experience with. So, <laughs> yeah, like, it's less than zero. Yeah, <laughs> so... And, and that's where yeah. I, it surprised me when you said you'd not played any game like this. Um, and then I thought about how you said, well, you really started with, like, Ocarina of Time and the N64. And I was like oh, well, that really makes sense then because I can't think of an N64 game that has this. Yeah, I can't think of a single one. Um, yep. Yep. I, no, I think those are I think those are all good points. And yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting topic to really kind of get into and hash out. It's, it's one that I want to continue evolving as we kind of make our way through the remainder of the season, because I, I know that we're planning on having you on for another episode before the rank and recap for Zelda 2. So we'll, we'll definitely catch up on all of these points later on as we've kind of gotten further in and we'll see uh, where our opinions have kind of landed with them. Uh, Real quick, let's go ahead and get the housekeeping out of the way because I want to get into our conversation about this chunk of the game this week um, because I I really do think that there's quite quite a lot to talk about. I think even much more to talk about in this chunk of game than there was um, at the equivalent point for The Legend of Zelda. Um, for sure i actually i totally agree with that yeah the the second chapter of this game is definitely beefier than the second chapter of uh tloz yeah yeah there's there's a lot going on here so let's uh let's housekeeping it up and get right into it if you didn't know sacred realms is a weekly re-examination of the legend of zelda one little slice at a time sacred realms drops every wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks every week we play a new section of a zelda game then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes if that sounds fun to you please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, which we have mentioned many times so far this episode, and will continue to do. Um, Listener mail, vote on what game we play next, which is going to be happening in the next week or two for our next 3D title, and much more. Of course, uh, one of the other benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get on our Patreon is that they get their names read every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Daxel, Patrice, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, keep it going, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Maximum Nichols, Garrett, and <laughs> Drew. And I'm gonna call him Maximum Nichols on this on this read from now until the you end. You absolutely of time. should do that. Yes. Yeah, please do. Yep, absolutely. Uh These are all truly legendary individuals. We could not make the show without their generous support. We very much enjoy um, speaking and uh, interacting with them in the Discord channel. They are truly the best of the best. Hey, listen. Hello, everybody. I have an editing mic insert that I want to get in at the end of this uh, housekeeping section before we jump into the Sacred Realms rundown. A few things that have kind of updated since we recorded this episode and thought were important to mention on this podcast. Thing number one is that if you haven't already noticed, we put the poll up for uh, voting on the game we're going to be playing in season seven up on the Patreon as of uh, the day that I'm recording. This is Tuesday of this week. Uh, So, yeah, uh, go Check that out. Vote uh, between Majora's Mask, Wind Waker, or Twilight Princess. Uh, We were uh, posting this one a little bit earlier in the season than normal because if either 
Twi- uh, Twilight Princess or Wind Waker wins, which it seems like one of those is probably going to, then that means Matt and I have to leave ourselves some time to procure an extra Nintendo Wii U console. So that's going to be great. Anyhow, uh, head over to the Patreon and go vote in that poll. We're probably going to leave it up for another two or three weeks. Uh, thing number two, trading cards. Uh, all of the Breath of the Wild cards finally arrived two weeks ago. They're packaged up. They're in envelopes. My plan is to take them to the post office before the end of the day. So they should all be going out very, very soon. Apologies for the delay on those. Um, season six card designs are going to be dropping in the Patreon and the Discord pretty soon as well. So look out for that. Also, there are a few patrons who we do not have addresses for. Uh, we've tried reaching out several times and haven't been able to get a hold of y'all. So Anywho, if you are a big Goran Sword patron and you have not received any trading cards in a while um, and you're listening to this, maybe hit us up and we'll get that address issue sorted out because we want to make sure that y'all are getting the uh, stuff that you are pledging for. One last thing. We do have a listener mail today that came in at the last minute. Uh, This comes from West3DP, our loyal listener and member of our Discord channel and Patreon West says that he would like to give a quick shout out to his younger brother. He says, we played through Breath of the Wild together before I even had my own Switch. And two days after this comes out, he is embarking on his next big adventure, Mowage. Congratulations to Ryan and his fiance Zaria. Not saying he's marrying her because her name is close to Zelda, but I'm also not saying that's not why. May your hearts be full. He's getting married this coming Friday on the 14th. So, yeah, I think we're going to we're going to get this out just in time for your brother to listen to your shout out in this episode. West, uh, super cool thing to do. Always appreciate getting those. Um, yeah. Congratulations to the bride and groom. Wish you a lifetime of happiness. Uh, also, this whole kind of shout out thing that Wes did uh, kicked off a conversation between Matt and myself in which we were trying to figure out whether it would be fun to establish like a process or a benefit or something around doing uh, shout outs, either personal or commercial within the podcast episodes. Um, we're going to be having that discussion a little bit over the next few weeks because we think it would be a fun thing to do. But also our episodes are pretty routinely two hours these days. So I don't know. Uh, you know, we would just be adding like a little extra length to them with something like that, but, uh, definitely not against it and something that might totally happen. So stay tuned for that. But, uh, regardless that that has been your editing mic for this episode. And now we return to your regularly scheduled sacred realms rundown. But without further ado, let's talk about what we played this week. We do that every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering The Adventure of Link Chapter 2, which contains Medoro Palace and Death Mountain. Part 1 is, as always, the plot recap this week read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. As we set out from the Parappa Palace, we decide to do a little exploring around the greater area of Hyrule. Along the coast in the northern section, we find a heart container that expands our life capacity, and in the town of Raru, we are introduced to a wise man who teaches us a magic spell to raise our defensive capacity and reduce the damage that enemies do to us. In the furthest northwest point of the map, we enter the town of Aruto and talk to the folks there. One person tells us that a mischievous Goira has stolen the beloved town heirloom and absconded to the Tentari Desert. Heading back east and further north, we come to a cave in the desert and find the troublesome fiend within. After swiftly kicking its furry butt, we take the trophy back to the people of Ruto. 
The town elder there rewards us with a new spell that will increase our jump to insane heights. We set off on the road south towards the swamps of Morug. Did I say that right? Mor- Morug? Does that sound right, Josh? I don't remember. <laughs> I, we're going to go with it. That <laughs> is now not? the official Sacred Realms pronunciation. <laughs> and you can tell us how wrong we are in our phonetics channel of Discord. <laughs> we have that. <laughs> we do. Uh, we, we set off... Uh, we set off on the road south towards the swamps of Morug and Death Mountain. In the cave that connects the northern uh, Hyrule to southern Hyrule, we get good use out of our newfound hops to traverse the space into the southern reaches of Hyrule. As soon as we exit the cave, we are knee-deep in the swamp water and the accompanying unpleasant collection of foes. Octoroks, aches, and flying crows plague the area and jump out at us at every turn. But in our exploration of the swamp, we come across an eerily lifelike doll of ourselves. Its magic gives us an extra life to rely on in case the foes around best us, but man, is it disconcerting to carry around. We continue heading south and eventually win free of the swamps and find our feet on solid ground once more. We then find ourselves in a thickly wooded area, and while wandering the paths here, we come across an isolated man named Bagu, who, for no reason at all, gives us a letter for the guards of the town of Saria, so that we can cross the river there. Since we never look to give force in the mouth, we head out and towards that river village. In this small village, we find some very odd things indeed. In one of the houses is a sleeping purple blot, and some of the townsfolk turn into purple aches and attack us when we try to talk to them. While we don't relish the thought of killing these folks, we would rather not get bitten over and over by them either. One of the ladies of the town that doesn't turn into an ache tells us that she has lost her mirror, which we quickly find in one of the village houses under a table. And once we bring it to her, she takes us to her uncle who teaches us the most useful spell of healing. With this new spell in hand, we head to the river and give the guard there the note from our reclusive friend. The guard promptly lowers the bridge, and we proceed to the southernmost point of Hyrule, the Death Mountain foothills. This region was the site of our last adventure, but has changed drastically in the intervening years. The tunnels of Death Mountain are completely full of ferocious enemies, the most fearsome of which are the axe-wielding Dyra that blow past our shield and deal massive amounts of damage. The health regeneration spell is absolutely invaluable as we continue through the gauntlet of powerful foes towards the Spectacle Rock. Once we finally win free of the caverns, we come to the Spectacle Cave and find it similarly full of insanely strong bad guys. But at the end of the cave, we find the magical hammer, which has the power to blow through obstacles and opens up large portions of the land for us to wander. We decide to use this new handy item on Spectacle Rock and find a potion that increases our overall magic supply underneath. Taking our new items in hand, we head back north to find the next palace and further our quest for the Triforce. The next stop is Medoro Palace, which is located deep in the heart of Medoro Swamp, which is north of Saria Village and just south of the mountain range that separates northern and southern Hyrule. This palace is far more challenging than the first and introduces some new enemies for us to tackle. In addition to the iron knuckles we faced in Parapa Palace, we have new experience-stealing enemies in the form of the flying dragon heads called Ra, 
There are rock spitting ropes as well and various traps to traverse. While some of the enemies are old hat, many have received substantive upgrades like the red iron knuckles, which do significantly more damage and have even more health to deal with. They tanky. And they're faster with the shield parries. Yep. The dungeon is more sprawling, and in the far western segment we find a new item called the Handy Glove, which allows us to bust down certain blocks in our path. Using this new item, we we make our way past a trap of falling blocks and head deeper into the dungeon. We finally come to the boss chamber, where we find a towering pile of armor devoid of noticeable human occupancy. The helmet sits atop this armored foe, and it charges into battle. Much like Horsehead, this boss is immune to damage unless we jump up and smack it in the face. The helmet flies off, only to be replaced by another. As we continue to do damage to the boss, it starts shooting energy beams from its void-like helmet, and as it approaches death, it summons all of its decapitated helmets to fly around the arena, shooting more balls of fire. Eventually, we bring this boss low as well, and in similarly dramatic fashion, Helmet Head explodes. We progress to the statue in the next room and place the crystal in its forehead as we were bidden by the scrolls. Taking the healing powers of the statue, we exit the palace and watch it collapse and turn to stone as we leave. The whole of Hyrule is in front of us, and with more magic added to our arsenal and the hammer to open up new paths of exploration, we set off to continue our journey towards the Triforce. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Let's get into part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. I do want to make a disclaimer real quick before we get into this. And uh, Josh, you may have uh, picked up on this a little bit as you listened to the order in which Matt read the plot recap. Uh, so as everyone knows from our last episode, we were provided with a handy list of tips and tricks uh, for success in this game uh, written by our guest of the evening, Josh, uh, and it had a lot of very useful information on there that has made Matt's and my playthrough of this game uh, much easier than it otherwise would have been for us. One of the tips that you included in there was the suggestion that we actually tackle Medoro Palace before going to Death Mountain. Uh, and I just want to say up front that Matt and I actually chose to do this two different ways, just so that we could kind of compare and contrast in this episode. Uh, Matt oh. went to – yeah, exactly. It was it was intentional. Yeah. Uh, Matt went to Death Mountain first and then did Medoro Palace, and I did uh, the inverse of that. I did the palace first and then went to Death Mountain. And I feel like we actually had decently different experiences with those two things uh, for having done that. So that that that's something that I definitely want to get into. Um, before we go down that rabbit hole too far, Josh, I want to open up the floor to you. You specifically requested to come on this episode um, – and I, I would love to know what about this section of the game is um, is interesting. Like, obviously, I think it's interesting for a variety of reasons, but I want to hear in your words why this is interesting enough to have been the episode that you primarily wanted to be on and talk about. All right. So a little bit of a <laughs> slight disclaimer here, right? So when I put the schedule together originally, we had the Medoro last week's episode, right? Uh, so initially I intended for death mountain and the next dungeon to be together, uh, because it kind of goes together in a way that we're not going to get into much. I'm sure we'll talk about it a tiny bit. Uh, but death mountain was the big reason why I wanted to be on this one, uh, because it's where a lot of people quit the game. 
like a lot of people quit the game, um, which is part of why I also suggested doing the dungeon first. Uh, uh, and, and in my guides, I or my tips, I mentioned that a lot of guides suggest that you do Death Mountain first. Uh, and uh, that's because you get the hammer, which opens up another section you haven't gone to yet uh, unless you get something helpful, <laughs> uh, which then uh, makes the game a little bit more manageable. Which would be you the, just have to force your... That's mm, the downward thrust sword attack, right? Yes. So, gotcha. yes. So in the next town, you can you learn the down thrust, which you may recognize from Super Smash Brothers because... Yep. Link's move set is very much inspired by Zelda 2. Um, and uh, side scrolling. <laughs> uh, yeah. So having the down thrust lets you just jump over enemies and uh, basically play like Mario a little bit more. All right. Uh, it, it gives you a little more maneuverability. The trouble is that Death Mountain is just awful. <laughs> um, Can uh, confirm. I mean, if you, if you have a map at least that like is going to help you, you at least know which doors to go in. Right. But without that, especially, uh, but even with it, there are so many difficult enemies that I think that sending someone who's just started the game, managed their way through Parappa palace, and then went in the dark cave and fought gorillas for like the, maybe the first time. And then went through the swamp. Like you've done all this stuff. And then to just, throw you into death mountain which i think is like the ultimate like difficulty spike and i will confirm it is just a like a temporary spike like i think the dungeon is easier maybe the next two dungeons are easier like the game is not that hard that quickly (laughs) except for that one spot uh and that's why it's like so many people get there and encounter a red dara and there i'm I'm done (laughs) like um like I have spent half an hour fighting them before I've seen other people spend half an hour fighting them before. Like it, it's a really difficult section of the game, but that's where in a way I'm here to encourage you to keep going <laughs> because it would not shock me at all. If we started this episode and you said, we've decided we're done. <laughs> we're not doing this anymore. We never, okay. we never would have done our listeners dirty like that. No, yeah, but, we're, we're committed. But yeah, it's just like, so many people get to this and they're just frustrated and they're done. Uh, uh, and this is where I got stuck so many times. It's just like the, getting to the end of it is like a huge accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like doing the second dungeon first uh, just gets you a little more experience under your belt. Uh, both both the literal experience points, uh, but also just experience playing the game and learning how it works. Yeah, um, yeah before you try and tackle it yeah so i um i definitely want to talk about the arrangement of death mountain a little bit more in the dungeon map because i do feel like it's applicable there i will say that um generally speaking i felt that your suggestion was one that i benefited greatly from um doing Medoro palace and then doing death mountain uh really helped me (laughs) out a lot uh obviously i was able to grind a lot of xp in Medoro palace and so my life and magic and all that was was significantly upgraded um i had also gotten the life restoration spell before i went to death mountain Mm -hmm. which matt had did not do nope um oh ouch 
Yeah. Uh, Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I had that to, to kind of <laughs> lean on and, and I don't want to make it sound like Death Mountain was a breeze for me. Like it was still punishingly difficult. It was a very difficult time. It was very challenging, but I feel like it would have been a lot more difficult had I done it the other way around. Um, I, I think that, uh, where I really landed on this whole section of the game is very much in alignment with what you're saying, Josh, which is that the difficulty spike from the intro to this this next chapter is so much more intense than the early stages of The Legend of Zelda. I feel like, you know, about this time in the last game, Matt and I were saying like, oh, you know, we feel like uh, we're kind of breezing through this, right? And then around Dungeon 5 in The Legend of Zelda, we really kind of hit that next, like suddenly hit that next major level of difficulty, you know? Um, and I, I felt like this section of Adventure of Link was was swiftly and punishingly more intense than the one prior to it. So um, definitely a lot of challenge this week, a lot of stuff to dig into. There there are a few things I will say that happened this week that I did find to be a little bit more classically reminiscent of Zelda, you know? Like there are some things that sort of happen here that actually weren't even in The Legend of Zelda that I kind of associate with the series on an ongoing basis. And uh, that was when I started to realize the patterns around like how you acquire the magical spells in the towns and how each town has kind of like a little mini quest that is required to get the spell from the person who's there. That's pretty classic Zelda. Um, I, I have some things about the dungeon layout specifically that we'll talk about more when we get there. But um, so, you know, th there were a few things that were happening here that did start to feel a little bit more familiar to me. And that was nice. Um, I was finding a, a few more secrets in the overworld this week, um, which, you know, that that was also pretty kind of warm comfort blanket Zelda feelings. Yeah, that was really fun. I, I, I enjoyed stumbling across the doll and uh you know, it was actually like magic containers. And, yeah, yeah. I, I went into the cave and got the magic container. I got the water of life, which I, I what I gather you use it to get a, another spell. It's not a, something that actually helps you intrinsically. But um, like I, I was able to find some things just by entering some caves after I uh, beat my head against the death mountain wall to get the hammer. And uh, yeah, like I, I think overall the outside of death mountain i really enjoyed this section of uh adventure of link more than this synonymous section of legend of zelda i think like uh, this section of legend of zelda felt kind of like a retread of, of chapter one whereas this uh chapter two of uh adventure of link was drastically different in in yeah. almost every conceivable way mm -hmm. and um well i enjoyed that um i will say I will never if anyone ever asks me if you play Zelda 2, what is one thing you would do differently? Do not go to Death Mountain under any circumstances unless you have the health, uh, the healing spell. Just don't do it like I, I there is no reason to. Uh, I spent more time like I died twice. So I was on my last life, including the, I used the doll life that I got and I spent the last like three caverns where you have to fight like two to between two and four Dyra's in each cavern with one 
shot of health. Like I had one, Mm -hmm. like anything would one shot me, even a, even a red blot would one shot me. And so like I was lit and I didn't want to game over because I didn't want to have to retread through all of those with all of those enemies again. And so I was just constantly like, all right, jump in, get a hit, run away. Oh, dang it. He still got me somehow. So rewind that one second, jump in, hit, run away. Like, man, it was awful. It was terrible, like especially playing this in a state where you wouldn't have rewind or even save states. I can't. I, can't I, I wouldn't do it. Wouldn't that. do it. Honestly, I, yeah. I, I would have stopped. Yeah. I'd been like, nope, uh, I'm just not doing I this. I, too, have done the I have one hit dance uh, in Death Mountain and in other parts of this game um, where I'm just like, I don't want to walk through it all again. Like even even when you get comfortable playing, right, the idea that a game over takes you back to North Castle just means you have to walk back to where you were. And it's just sort of a, I don't really want to do that. Yeah. Exactly. So it doesn't matter that I had one hit. I'll just power my way through with one hit. Yep. It is. Um, uh, it, it was an exercise in severe frustration. That is for sure. Yeah. So, you know, if I could do it over There's again, a reason the life spell is, in sorry it's out yeah so i want to talk about the life spell real quick because this was Mm -hmm. this was my main takeaway out of this week of play um having spent about three hours in this game so far and having a good feel for the core mechanics of the game you know the, the way that it functions minute to minute and granted there are still more spells and abilities that we don't have yet and we're going to continue upgrading our life and our magic and all those other things but like the the base gameplay and the way that it works the way your health economy works specifically is pretty like we we know like we have a good idea of how it is at this point and I think my biggest takeaway from this week is that I feel like this game is actually pretty fun, you know, just like the the base, like the base mechanics and the way that it works and functions. It's all pretty fun. I really feel like this game should have had health drops as a mechanic, Um, not even necessarily as frequent as what you get like heart drops from enemies in the Legend of Zelda or other Zelda. Like, you know, it doesn't need to be that frequent if if that's you know if if they were trying to shoot for a little bit more combat difficulty i get that but like this game really has a health economy issue um and it's 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 something that frequently frustrated me like yeah i I totally agree and especially like even when you get the life spell at this point in the game unless you've dumped every upgrade that you have gotten into magic you can use it once and then right. you have to and then it, it depletes more than half of your magic and magic drops aren't exactly super common either. And it, it's just a constant struggle of scarcity, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, I totally understand adds a huge uptick in difficulty compared to many other Zelda games, which, in my opinion, a lot of them don't have combat difficulty in any way. But like, man, it adds a it adds an. I don't want to say artificial because I think it was very intentional, but it, it adds a it adds a difficulty due to scarcity that I don't necessarily love. Yeah, so I do generally agree they probably could have given you a little bit more than they give you, um, and, and you can see that uh, other like classic platformers uh, kind of have it a little better. Like uh, using Castlevania as a reference, Castlevania has heart drops which are not health. Uh, they are essentially 
skill points uh, that you use for special abilities. But then they have like roast beef that'll drop occasionally. Uh, so you get a little bit of it. It is often like hidden. Like there's jokes and stuff about finding meat in the wall. Uh, and that's literally because you'll just like break a random block on the wall and there'll be some beef there. <laughs> um, and uh, But those are the healing items. And uh, they do want you to use light, the life spell in this game. Uh, magic drops, uh, but also all drops in Zelda and in Zelda 2 are not exactly random. <laughs> um, there is some randomness to them, but if you find that an enemy in either game really is dropping an item often, uh, or you see like, oh, well, that enemy dropped a magic jar this time, and this other enemy never seems to drop anything, it's because that's true. Uh, and uh, that there are actually places, and we talked briefly about in the in this plot recap, you mentioned Ra. The, I, I always call them Medusa heads, even though that's not what they are, because Castlevania has the exact same enemy type, except it's a little Medusa head, and I just associate them together. But you're right, they're little horse heads that fly across. Uh, if you kill them, repeatedly you'll find that like roughly every six drops a magic jar um well that's good to know because i had a hell of a time trying to kill even like i i mostly avoided them they're pretty tanky they're easier to kill once you have the downstep gotcha (laughs) especially they're much easier because you can just jump on their heads and like pogo stick on top of them basically um and uh so that a lot of those rooms that have that it's almost like those are your magic refill rooms where you can just sit there and kill them forever. Uh, and it, it's almost like they intentionally gave it to you so that you could just fight enemies forever and get drops. Uh, there, there's also, uh, you'll probably see this on maps if you're, I'm assuming you all are using some maps, uh, where there are little iron knuckle looking statues in rooms Yep. Uh, that sometimes will drop a full magic refill if you hit them. Yeah, I've started hitting uh, so, every statue I can find. And also uh, in some of the dungeons, there are like dragon head uh, gargoyle yeah, looking yeah, things yeah. that are sticking out of the wall that if you use a jump mm-hmm. spell, you can hit, you can jump up and hit them. Um, I found at least one in every dungeon in both of the dungeons so far that dropped a full magic jar as well. So I've, anytime I yeah. see yeah. An, an edifice, I'd go up and smack it. And see <laughs> yeah. If, I'm see constantly on the lookout for those as well, because you're right. They are, yes. they are definitely very helpful. Um, a point, uh, to what you were just saying, Josh, about maps and how much we're kind of using those. Um, I think that when I went into this game, I was kind of thinking that I was going to try and rely on dungeon maps a little bit less like Googling, you know, Zelda 2, Medoro Palace map. You know, I I, I told myself I was going to do that a little bit less, especially because, you know, we were working with Phil's guide for The Legend of Zelda. And I just wanted to kind of challenge myself, be like, I don't want to rely on that kind of stuff quite as much. And um, kind of the rule that I'm going with so far is that. Once I've been in a place for about 15, 20 minutes and played it a bit, then I will allow myself to go check the map for it because in my head, that's about the timing in which another Zelda game would give you a dungeon map, right? Um, And I I don't want to talk about the dungeon too much yet, but I'm doing the same thing with the overworld. I did the same thing with Death Mountain, right? Um, And what I'm finding so far is that 
allowing myself to use those resources is actually enhancing my gameplay experience quite a lot because the crux of this game is not in the exploration, really. It really is about the combat. Like, I'm not finding mm-hmm. the game to be um, it, it's not like the game is a breeze once you start referencing a map, right? Like the game is still really hard. I feel like I'm just wasting less time by doing that. No, you're exactly right. Um, it, it's really weird around this time. Nintendo like stop putting maps in games. <laughs> I don't, I don't quite get it. Uh, but like all of these, uh, there's a bunch of games here. Uh, I, I can just name three Zelda two Metroid and Kid Icarus. All three of them would benefit greatly if you had a map of any kind a map that you know filled in as you went anything but they gave you a map in the legend of zelda and then they took it away and you get nothing yeah uh, like i, I was even thinking that the little dot on uh on the overworld that you get in legend of zelda would even be more helpful right like at least you yeah, had like, kind of like, a relative knowledge of where you were on the map in general right like oh <laughs> i can see my dot is over in the you know, far southwest corner. So, and and I think I need to be over in the you know north. So, if I go these many squares over and start going up, I, I can kind of maneuver my way over there. But yeah, you have no, you don't even have a relative idea of where you are, or like how big Hyrule is, or any, or how big the dungeon you're in is. Exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more, but. We will. Yeah. And speaking of maps, uh, I did want to mention so a, a quick lore thing real quick that I thought was really cool. And this is what I was alluding to earlier when I said there was a neat little bit about Death Mountain that I wanted to talk about. Um, from a lore standpoint this week, we have a really cool connection to The Legend of Zelda that I thought was just neat. I wasn't expecting it. When I realized what it was, I was like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. Um, So going back to discussions that we've had around the fact that The Legend of Zelda takes place in the foothills of Death Mountain, right? So this week, while playing in the Death Mountain section of the game, once you get down to... Once you get down to the south area uh, where you actually get the hammer and the magic container, um, I noticed on the map that I was referencing that it was labeled as Spectacle Rock. And I was like, "Okay, well, that's interesting. You know, there was a Spectacle Rock in The Legend of Zelda. And then I looked at that 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 topography a little bit more closely. That southernmost area of Death Mountain is just a scaled down version of the Zelda one overworld map. The lakes are in the same place. The forests are in the same place. Spectacle Rock is in the same place. The graveyard is in the same place. And the ocean is off to the far east, like in The Legend of Zelda. Um, It's really cool and definitely, I thought, a very, very interesting canonical tie to the game that immediately preceded this one. Um, It's the kind of thing that Zelda lore nerds, I think, would go really crazy for. And I'm sure it's common knowledge, but I discovered it in-game like as I was playing and it was just such a such a cool moment. And I think the natural extension of this is that uh, unless somebody feels like there's a really good reason that this isn't the case, I feel like you get the hammer from the cleared out Death Mountain dungeon from the end of The Legend of Zelda. It's kind of in the same place. It's yeah. in the same rock. Like, yeah. no, it, it's in the same rock. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually I took, so cool. I took notes and did extra research on this like because I I knew this was the time to bring this up because it had been brought up before. So I'm glad you noticed it without me having to say, did you figure it out? Yeah, I didn't <laughs> notice it. Lyndon comes over and he goes, look at this section of the map and tell me if it looks like anything to you. And I was like, no, not really. And he was like, dude, it's the it's the Legend of Zelda overworld map. And I was like, 
And as soon as he said it, I started like piecing it together. And what really did it for me was the shape of the lake that's there, yep. which is the, the main lake. And as soon as I like made the connection of that was that same lake, I was I, everything <laughs> else just immediately fell into place. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so cool. So, yeah, that was that was a really, really awesome piece of continuity that they kept. Yep. And man, I loved that. So I did the math on this. I was looking at it uh, the other day uh, that and this gives you a sense of scale because I, we talk about how this overworld is like everything is scaled down to make Hyrule bigger. Uh, and it's consistent with the scale and gives, and it gives you like an idea of the kind of the size of the like world they were trying to build, uh, even though it's like all just like the lore. Right. Um, but it is about one seventy fifth of the size <laughs> of, wow. of, of it is. Um, it is, they have scaled down, uh, I think I've got this right. Each like each tile in the Legend of Zelda, like every tree or rock or whatever, uh, added up is 117 tiles by 238 tiles. They have scaled it down to 13 by 23. Wow, I'm glad you did the uh, math because I never would have done that. But yeah. that is that's insane. That actually may be that may make this map just scale wise one of the largest outside of breath of the wild if i'm not mistaken like that's a huge yeah, map like, like there, there's actually things about this that um that really make me uh well there, there's things about that we could we would get to later that i think you'll even say i was like wow this really reminds me of breath of the wild uh things that i saw immediately in breath of the wild i was like wow that really reminds me of zelda 2 and, and there's still more things that i really hope they kind of revisit that breath of the wild doesn't and i'm like now that we've built hyrule like at this big scale i wonder if they could bring this back uh, and, and i'd really like to see that like i wonder if they could bring this back <laughs> yeah and i i definitely agree with that i think uh i think that the, the tone and feel of what they're going for in this game knowing that we now have the technology to make it possible in a more immersive way i would love to see carried forward um you know not to not to steal uh, the spotlight on the question that Matt asked Josh earlier in the episode, but um, you know, I I do think that just generally speaking, there are things that happen in this game that I think there there is room in modern Zelda mm-hmm. for. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, I don't think that experience and the point system is necessarily something that should never be revisited. Yeah, it's actually one of the talking about. Or I guess continuing the conversation from last episode where the experience point system for me is still continuing to be a very rewarding mechanic that I'm enjoying quite a lot. Like I found myself watching my experience point counter and like it thinking in my head like, okay, do I want to bank these to invest in magic or attack power or or health or like how am I wanting to level up my my link Um given the challenges that I'm facing now and what I believe I will be facing in the near future. And um, having that tied to an intrinsic reward versus a what item am I getting in the next dungeon, mm. I, I think is really, I, I'm really, really enjoying that uh, yeah. specifically well, as part of this game. It's really very similar to a modern game design system. Uh, it has bigger numbers than we're used to. Right, a lot of games use leveling up, uh, and like just stick with Nintendo. I can say like Fire Emblem. When you level up in Fire Emblem, you've got like a list of stats: your HP, your strength, your magic, your 
whatever, right? And you just get like plus two HP and plus one strength and whatever. And it's just there's some randomness to that, but uh, but it's just you get a level up and you just get some stats, and that's what you get. Uh, but a lot of modern games um, will le- give you a level up and give you those things, but then also give you like a skill point, some kind of skill point that you get to like pick. Well, which ability do you want to unlock? Or do you want to put all of your points into strength or do you want to put all your points into magic? Like you get to choose how to build your character uh, at the pace you want to make it. Zelda 2 system is like that. The numbers are just much bigger. Like they're using 5,000 experience points instead of five talent points to unlock it. Uh, and, uh, and I think most of the modern games would just give you one point every level up and let you pick what you want to put it in. Uh, and here they just have bigger numbers, but you are just saving points and spending them to unlock abilities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, like Matt said, this whole system is one that I actually am. You, you have a lot of incentive to kind of continue pursuing upgrades. Right. And I feel like, the, yeah, there's a game over screen if you don't. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like, I'm still getting upgrades on a very fair pace. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the game is throwing them at me, but I feel like I'm getting them when I feel like I deserve to be getting them. It, yeah. It's not feeling overly grindy in that way, which is which is nice. Have you done any grinding at this point? Uh, not really. The closest that I have done is that I um <laughs> I've started farming the the bubbles in dungeons yep. for mm-hmm. the for that easy fifty XP. Um, I, I do that in Parappa Palace a lot. Just yeah. And and so yeah, that's that's nice, but that's I've definitely have not done any field combat grinding. Yeah, I, I, I did a little bit at this point of the game. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Josh, but like I did a little bit in the first section. I d- actually didn't feel the need to do it in this section because like I got a lot of like all of the enemies in Death Mountain and even in uh Medora Palace are like fairly chunky uh xp boosts like 50 70 100 and um i actually got kind of lucky with some uh like those the bags that drop that are like a plus 200 i got like three of those in death mountain and so i i boosted quite a bit of level um quite a bit of levels in that in this section that i didn't feel like i needed to go out and continue looking for trash mobs to to slash with my sword yeah and um that was and to Linda's point, like it it feels very um, intelligently cadenced out right now. I'm curious to see as these numbers continue to just get bigger and bigger and bigger, like if it is going to at some point feel more like a oh my gosh, now I got to go find some red diras so I can get 100 points instead of, you know, what, two what, points what upgrade level were your stats all at at the end of this playthrough? Uh, actually, I have my switch right here for this exact question because I don't remember. I'll so I was, I'll answer while you're pulling that up. I ended this section of the game at level five attack, level four magic, and level five uh, life. So I currently have a level four attack, five magic, and six life. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, I was gonna. Similar. I was looking myself here. See what I did, and yeah, I got. I have four, five, and six. I, I honestly I feel like, it. man. I honestly feel like um, attack is probably the least 
innately beneficial, like in a weird turn of events. Like normally I would go for attack first and just, you know, rely on, uh, you know, magic and health as, as needed. But, um, like, especially now that you have life spell and level four attack is pretty, pretty good. So I'm, I'm hit, I'm killing most things, including like blue Goyras. I'm killing them in like three hits or something. So, um, I, I don't, I don't feel the need to really focus in on attack right now because I really feel like magic is where I, you need to be investing points so that you can use those spells and, and use the life regeneration and um, stuff like that. So, yeah. So you will find some diminishing returns on some of that. If you focus too much on like magic up front, um, the, because uh, since you notice there's magic containers that actually increase your amount of magic, right? Yep. The magic level ups decrease the amount of magic you spend on spells, but at a certain point it stops. Like, uh, so y- you'll notice that it's basically on a curve, right? That the the first spells you get, their price will go down faster at the beginning, but then you'll notice that it just doesn't go down anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the newer spells you get, their prices will go down. But essentially, the first spells will always be the cheapest, and the last spells will always be the most expensive. Um, uh, most people that get that actually like play the game a lot, uh, and, you know, like inv- invoking speedrunners in this kind of we're playing for the first time conversation is not super helpful. But uh, attack is generally the favored uh, skill to level up. Interesting, just because okay. it does make like in particular once you've learned when you need to use spells and when you don't, and you're good enough at the game to not get hit all the time being able to kill things faster is just the most useful thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's like, eventually you need to do all of it. It's just like, what do you prioritize up front? Uh, and being able to plow through the enemies in death mountain is is, is more useful. <laughs> uh, yeah. So before we move on to the dungeon map, I want to go around the table real quick, and I'm going to start with you, Josh. Is there anything just kind of generally that you want to bring up as a discussion point around this section of the game that is not directly? Yes, actually, that I now that you've just mentioned it, I was going to mention it because we it was mentioned in the plot recap, and then we didn't talk about it. Uh, and that's Bagu uh, and the bot in the town um, that came up. Uh, so, Matt, did you actually just find Bagu randomly? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, and you can do that because he's just chilling out in the forest in a square, right? Yep. But that is a side quest. Like, the intended route is you go to Saria Town, you get to the bridge, and the riverman says, I can't let you cross unless Bagu says so. And you're like, well, what's a Bagu? <laughs> uh, and um, and uh, what what you're supposed to do is that little bot in the town is asleep. But if you talk to him over and over and over and over again, he eventually wakes up and will tell you where Bagu is. And then you go talk to Bagu and he gives you the note and you bring it to the river man. Uh, likewise, uh, this is one of the only times in the game where you'll find that you need to interact with an inanimate object in a weird way to get the mirror, uh, which is part of why I put it in the tips and told you where the mirror was. <laughs> because there's nothing like this anywhere in the game. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is another thing that's kind of a common-ish uh, design thing from this era. There's a lot of little RPGs like this where you could just run around and randomly click A on things. And you'd be like, oh, this is just some random bookshelf. Oh, you get a free potion. 
oh, you get a whatever. A modern game would put like a little sparkly on it or something to tell you to click on this. Uh, and this game doesn't. It's just I lost my mirror and like the the trophy was in a cave. Is the mirror in a cave too? <laughs> like where where is the mirror? And there's absolutely no indication where the mirror is. Like I've researched it repeatedly. There is nothing to tell you where that mirror is. Uh, yeah. I love I, that. I was very happy for your tip because I think that yeah. uh, I, I I can't think of a way that I would have found this without a walkthrough or something. And, and that's why you know? it's there because like that's another thing. Like it gives you the life spell. Yeah, like, it's if so. If you important. had no tip to do it, you could play the whole game without the life spell and think there's no healing spell. Well, and that's why I ended up going into Death Mountain without the life spell because I didn't know where to find the mirror and I hadn't. I had I forgot that you had put that in your tips and like I, I was just like, OK, I guess I'm going to continue on and maybe I'll find the mirror somewhere in in the ca- in the caverns of Death Mountain and, and come back and get it. But <laughs> nope. So I and oddly enough, instead of following the most direct route to get the hammer, I went through a lot of the caverns in Death Mountain trying to find the the mirror or something else that would give me a, a hint as to how to get the life spell and never did. And uh, yeah, so that, that's, that is the origin point of not having the life spell for death mountain for me, which, uh, <coughs> which we'll get into um, before we do that, Matt, do you have anything that you want to bring up kind of generally about this section of the game before we move on? No, I think, I think I've, I've covered most of my thoughts. Cool. Cool. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that I am continuing to find the addition of towns and social like populated spaces uh, to be a high point in this game and a major positive uh, differentiating factor of this game over The Legend of Zelda. Yep. It's really nice to see NPCs like I feel like a lot of these goofy characters are goofy in the grand tradition of like Zelda NPCs being weird, you yep, know? Absolutely. Oh, actually, I do have a random question that Josh, you might know the answer to. Why do some of the townspeople in Saria Town turn into bats? Like that was very weird. Well, that's not just that's not just in Saria Town. Oh. It's a sort of uh, Ganon's minions are after you. Ganon's minions are everywhere, sort of thing. Oh, the, you know, there's spies in the town. You got to watch out. They're out to get you. No matter the town's not safe necessarily. Uh, their eyes again and are everywhere. Okay, fair enough. Well, there you go. Makes sense to me. All right, y'all, let's go ahead and move on to part three, which is the dungeon map where we analyze this week's dungeon and dungeon-like space from mechanics to music and more. Let's go ahead and start with a discussion about Medoro Palace and then get into Death Mountain Second. Does that sound good? Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, really quick up front, I just want to say that in Medoro Palace, I started to get vibes that I felt like were a bit more um, uh, traditional Zelda dungeon vibes. And I think in some ways, even though it's not immediately apparent, I think that uh, this this dungeon to me started to feel a bit more similar to the way that the flow of a dungeon typically works in other top-down Zelda games, other 3D Zelda games. Um, and what I mean by that is that, uh, especially without a map, I don't want to make it sound like not having a map is a good thing, but the exploratory nature of these dungeons lends itself to um, backtracking just a little bit more than dungeons in The Legend of Zelda did. Yep. 
in a way that I think is pretty traditional of like, you know, uh, like I think of the dungeons in Link's Awakening where I'm just kind of I'm doing a lot of exploring and finding a room that I can't do anything in immediately. And so I go and try to find something else in another room and then come back later. And um, so even though it's side scrolling and the perspective is different and the dungeon itself is a bit more combat focused than it is puzzle focused, I did find a lot of familiar feelings here. And that was nice. I, I really appreciated that about it. Um, Medoro Palace is much more sprawling than Parappa Palace for sure. Um, and I, I, again, I highly recommend consulting a map, at least after having played it for 20 or 30 minutes, which is, again, what I did. I think that that's a, a really fun balance to try and strike as you're kind of going into this, especially if you're playing it for the first time and you have a lot of experience with the Zelda series. Uh, because doing that whole thing where you're kind of simulating the moment of acquiring a dungeon map based mm-hmm. on playtime um, leads to an, another more similar feeling, right? Where it's like you have some context for rooms that you've already been in and you have some knowledge of like which room leads to where and what elevators you've already visited, so on and so forth. So that was really fun. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, from a combat perspective, this dungeon is is much more difficult than Parappa Palace. There's mm-hmm. a lot of very beefy enemies in here. Um, lots of iron knuckles. The red iron knuckles are Oof. challenging. Rough. Yeah. And they're, I they're tried difficult. to do the thing that you had told that our Discord channel had told us, which is the jump slash on iron knuckles. I couldn't get it down. I, I like couldn't it get takes it. some practice. I'm, yeah. I'm getting better um, at it. Uh, my what what I like to do, you can't always do this. It depends on the room. But it's good to practice in a room where the ceiling is low or where you've got like where the where you can't jump very high mm-hmm. uh, because it's like the exact height. Yeah, like that, <laughs> so that was my constant iron knuckle, problem is I would jump too high. If you high. get an iron knuckle in those little corridors, you basically just have to jump in and you'll like learn the exact timing then because the timing is more or less the same even if the ceiling is higher. Uh, it's just learning that timing. Um but yeah, that is definitely the strategy for fighting those things because they are way too smart. Like trying to fight them legit and get through their shields, you will never finish this game. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's they, hard. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I I've been working on it and doing it that way against Iron Knuckles, I found is actually helping me quite a lot in the boss battles so far as well. Mm-hmm. Um, against horse head and against helmet head what was it is that it yeah helmet head okay cool yes it's helmet head yeah uh it really helped me against both of those bosses and you know like like i said it's something that i'm kind of like i'm slowly improving on so cool i'm always i'm always down for a good combat learning curve um i also really appreciated that there is somewhat of a mechanic in this dungeon where after you get the dungeon's main item you're able to interact with the dungeon in a different way which is something that we've kind of like said is a pain point in the last game you know where you get a an item and it doesn't really apply to the dungeon at all so you get the what is it the power glove is that what it's called the handy glove yes. the handy glove cool. which sounds dirty as a <laughs> is it really called the handy glove? It, it is literally called the handy glove yes because I yeah I've always called it the power glove but maybe I'm just that's what it's called in every right. other it's game called it's, it's yeah because uh, like a link to the past of course is the game I play the most and that's so that, I mean that's what I've always just assumed it was the power glove but yeah you're right it's called the handy glove so after you get the handy glove uh, what you're able to do is to destroy the square blocks 
that mm-hmm. uh, that are littered around this dungeon, and then also the ones that kind of like Tetris fall that try to block you from getting the handy glove in the first place. <laughs> I almost died to that. So did I, actually. And I thought it was so cool after picking up the handy glove that it like in, you have to go right back past those again, and it's putting you in this situation where the game is giving you an opportunity to figure out <clears throat> what the handy glove does, Yeah. right? I don't know how many people are going to try hitting those with their sword and then realize that now they can destroy them. Yeah, like that's a weird thing to give you an ability with no explanation that that's what it's supposed to do because there's no indication in any way that those are destructible before you come to it. Like when you hit them, they have the exact same uh, bounce back sound as a regular solid mm-hmm. wall. So that like if they sounded different, like if you hit it and it <laughs> sounded hollow, like maybe you could kind of make that leap. But yeah, there's especially with the previous game, Legend of Zelda, not having anything similar to this outside of the power bracelet, which just lets you move blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, there, yeah, there's like no way to know that this is what you're supposed to do. I, I think it would have been a better game design if that room maybe had been later uh, and that somehow the exit to the room was actually blocked by the blocks. Like you have to destroy some blocks later that are just literally in the path, right? Yeah. Like uh, if you pick up, that, if you pick up the handy glove and some blocks drop down to close it off, like, right. Boom. Uh, and that's where I compare this game a lot to Metroid. Um, and, uh, and it's like these dungeons essentially are like little mini Metroid areas and Metroid does that a lot. They'll give you something, but it's like, oh, well, you fell through a one-way door. You can't get out unless you get the item, and then you have to immediately test it out to get out of the room. Yeah. Uh, and that teaches you what the item did. Even if all that is is, well, that item opens a new kind of door. Um, like That's how you, how you learn in Metroid what abilities can do. Um, and so, yeah, this is not the best way to teach you that it does that. Uh, I guess the only consolation is that you don't actually have to. Like, if you want the little uh, XP bag, then you might try to do something. But mm. usually you can just run through that room. Well, uh, one and- thing that I, I am kind of wondering about is, you know, in The Legend of Zelda, there were no text blocks in-game, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but in this game, there are. <clears throat> you know, you get little dialogue boxes when you talk to characters or whatever. And... I wish that you got a little one that pops up whenever you get a new item. Like other Zelda games do this, you know, in, you know, Link's Awakening, Link to the Past, all those. You pick up an item and it says you got the fire rod, burn everything to the ground um, or whatever, right? So there's another thing maybe Max can explain better. But my understanding is that text was just kind of difficult. Uh and in particular, it was because in some cases there's a difference in Japanese versus English. That you can write something in Japanese and it takes a lot fewer characters than it takes in English in a lot of times. And so that's where you end up with just like weird phrases, right? Where uh, the, the sentences, even in Zelda 1 and Zelda 2, sometimes the sentences feel kind of incomplete. Um, and my understanding is that's because they had a limited number of characters they could use uh, to fit in the box. Um, and so it, I think it really is just falls back to a, it's a technical limitation that they couldn't really do that for memory reasons or something. They just could not put a proper explanation in the game. So it's in the manual, uh, 
where where you, they just expect you to learn what the items do by reading the manual. Uh, yeah, yeah. And once once games once that wasn't really a problem anymore, which I guess was a link to the past, they can start explaining in the game what things do uh, more. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'd never really thought about that before. Um, I guess in later games, they I, I think they probably have some sort of baked in font engine of some kind. Um, and I, I guess that's something that probably wasn't on hand this early. I mean, maybe the maybe right. like the letters have to be individually like designed pixel by pixel when mm-hmm. whenever they appear. And, and, and that's sort of a, an interesting note because Nintendo did something about this recently. Uh, the original Fire Emblem for the NES uh, was not released when on the NES originally. In fact, it's still never been released on the NES. But they brought it to the Switch, and they did a whole new localization for it, and they did exactly what you're saying. Like They eliminated any of the text limitations and gave it a proper translation where you could scroll through as much text as you needed uh, and, and play it properly. Uh, and get the story. Uh, but they did that 35 years later. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, Matt, how did you feel about Maduro Palace? Yeah, I, I liked Maduro Palace, honestly. I think going to it after um, Death Mountain made it uh, made it s- seem not as difficult, just because I don't think anything can ever be as difficult as Death Mountain <laughs> without a health potion or without a health spell. <laughs> so, like... It was kind of refreshing to, number one, have have an ability that allowed me to have more survivability, right? I, I actually didn't, I wasn't in danger of even dying uh, in the, in this dungeon, in this palace because of the health spell. I, I kind of got into a good rhythm of knowing how much magic it was going to take to heal myself. And so I was able to kind of use that wisely. Um, I heavily relied on the shield spell as well. Like anytime I would see an iron knuckle, boom, activate shield spell. Cause at this point it, it's, um, it's fairly cheap ish, um, for, to activate the shield spell. So that, that was really helpful. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think that going through, it felt more like a link to the past dungeon than, you know, any of the dungeons we've had in Legend of Zelda or Adventure of Link so far. So um, I can kind of see the through lines and the threads being drawn to set up what we got in Link to the Past um, here. So I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, introduction of a couple new enemy types was was interesting. I find it I, I find it even more interesting that they're already giving us up upgraded versions of enemies like that's not something you see this early in the game most of the time um like second dungeon you're already getting the the final variant of dark nuts right or uh, sorry iron knuckles and uh or at least i think they're the final version the reds i don't know if they're blue iron knuckles or not but um yeah like it, it's it's interesting to see that they're kind of pulling that out of the bag pretty early on um but yeah. overall i liked it i think the boss fight was more disappointing just because it felt like a retread of Horsehead. Yeah. Like I was hoping for something different. Um, you know, jump and hit the head is only interesting so many times. So I hope that this is not a continuing theme throughout the rest of the <laughs> guardians. Right. Um, Oh yeah. All the bosses are just jumping at their heads. Everyone <laughs> like, I hope that's not true, but 
It's not true. I don't know. It's probably okay, not the last boss in the game where you where the weak point is the head. But um, but no, I I've always kind of compared it. It feels a little bit like uh, like a variant on Gleok, where you know, like the heads come off and they fly around the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it also feels like inspiration for Blind in A Link to the Past. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. where you've got a guy whose head's head comes off while he shoots a bunch of fireballs at you. Uh, and so it always reminds me of that. Like I'm fighting blind, the thief, man, this is totally a, a rabbit trail. But one thing that I've been thinking of off and on as we go through each game that we play is like, whenever we're done with this and I'm actually free to just revisit Zelda games at my, <clears throat> at my leisure, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, just which like, one are you going to do first? Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, what am I in the mood to play? I feel like it might actually be linked to the past. I might go back to that one, uh, pretty early on when I'm like free like to twice just, this year. Oh yeah, my my <laughs> first a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, my first stop, uh, post post podcast. If we ever get to a post podcast, uh, time is definitely going to be here remote Skyward Sword. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm actually was thinking about that just a few minutes ago. Uh, you know, I, I have our Discord channel pulled up just in case anyone asks us interesting questions, and I was kind of revisiting Tiffany's thread on her experience playing through Skyward Sword mm-hmm. the first time, and I was like, ah. I still haven't played that game on hero mode yet just because you have to have a completed save file to start hero mode. And normally like Skyward Sword's a pretty chunky game. So trying to go trying to get myself in the mood to play it back to back. I've never been able to muster that. Um, but I was just like, man, I, I really want to do that. So that was fun. Rabbit trail. Thank you. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Anytime. Coincidentally, I am in the middle of playing Skyward Sword hero mode for the first time. Nice. I, I I should finish. I'm actually doing it on stream. I should finish it next week. All I got left is demise. So. Ooh, fun. There you go. Uh, so yeah, going back to this dungeon, I I agree with your thoughts on the boss, Matt. I think that uh, I really would have liked a little bit more variation <coughs> from Horsehead here. Um, Helmet head. Oh, 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 variation. Yes, I, I would have liked Helmet to, Head yeah, yeah, to be it. a little more different than Horsehead. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, following that, <laughs> following that line of thought now. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but you know, overall, I still I still found it to be challenging in a decently fun way. Um, it, it, you know, it was hard, uh, but I felt like I felt like I was doing a lot less like flailing around, hoping to hit a strike. You know, like I do yeah. feel <laughs> like I am getting better at this game. Um, and that's a good feeling in any game, really. You For know? sure. Uh, to feel like you're kind of getting some return on your time investment mm-hmm. is, is nice. Um, Josh? I, I'm sorry. And I do want to say, just to continue that thought, is I never really had the same feeling in Legend of Zelda because it was such a standard hack and slash. Yeah. So, like, it is rewarding in a very different way from Legend of Zelda because the more I play this game the more I feel that I am better equipped to tackle the challenges because of the experience that I have had in the playing of the game. Right. Yeah. And so that, that is in itself a, a big difference between legend of Zelda and adventure of link and the way the, the game feels as we progress through it, both games, of course, neither of us had ever played before. I, I feel the learning curve being, much harder in Adventure of Link, but more rewarding when you start getting the hang of how it progresses. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, co-signed. Josh, do you have anything you want to say about Medoro Palace before we move on and start talking about Death Mountain? Uh, I was going to mention, like, I, I'm actually looking at the map now, and I'm, and I'm feeling a little bit dumb, but, like, um, I still get lost in this palace. 
mm-hmm. all the time. When I when I come to this palace, like a lot of them, like I don't have them memorized, right? But a lot of them, I I get into them and I kind of understand. I kind of just remember and know what to do. Uh, this one, every time I'm like, there's this elevator right at the beginning. Which door am I supposed to go in? And <laughs> I just don't know. Yeah, and uh, and more and maybe more often than in near any other dungeon in this game, I go the wrong way and find myself in a locked door and don't have a key. Yeah, and, I, and then I'm like, well, where to now? Yeah, I find it interesting. Also, I have the map pulled up here. That first elevator, the first like you go down. There's three levels that you go down on that first elevator. The first two levels, the right, the right turn is just a blind corner that leads nowhere. Yep. But the third one is where you go all the way to the right. And so, like, it's kind of interesting. They they kind of head fake <laughs> you twice. Um, and yeah, it was. It I think it's a it's an interesting design layout and definitely one that. Um, I didn't have a map of it pulled up for the first at least 30 to 45 minutes that I was wandering around here. Um, and once I pulled it up, I was like, oh, I never went down to the very bottom level of that first elevator, which is why I was missing the key that I needed to mm-hmm. get to the, the handy glove. Yeah. So, yeah, because like, it feels oh, like yeah. that. Ele- it feels like the bottom of the elevator should be the end. Yeah, exactly. Especially after you do Parappa Palace, which is so much simpler. It's just like, why would you go all the way out of the bottom? Surely the boss is at the bottom. Exactly. That, <laughs> that was exactly my the thought. Case. Do, the, um, do the dungeons continue increasing in size exponentially? Uh, I would not say that it is a like uh, straightforward, oh yeah, every dungeon is bigger than the last, but this is not the biggest dungeon. Like, they do get bigger. Um, okay. uh, they get bigger. They get more interesting. I won't. I wouldn't say that every dungeon item is something that you use in a dungeon, uh, but uh, they. All, I mean, clearly, all the items do something, right? But uh, but no, you'll find that uh, you have to start thinking a little more to f- get through things. Uh, I'm sure you'll have some interesting conversations about future dungeon mechanics. I can think of two or three just off the top of my head mm-hmm. that uh, will either be really interesting to you or just baffling game design decisions. <laughs> the O word. Can't wait. Um, Obtuse? Uh, yeah, there you go. That one. Uh, yeah. I was also going to say, just looking at uh, notes on Medora Palace, I, I actually just learned this myself. Uh, they actually changed an enemy in this dungeon for the US version. Uh, the Apparently the enemy Aneru, which looks like a little snake that shoots rocks at you, yeah, uh, is not in the Japanese version. Interesting. It's an Octorok in the Japanese version. <laughs> That's really interesting. Hmm, uh, it is Octorok like because it shoots rocks at you. Um, yes. I also want to say that I tackled the mace throwers in this dungeon a lot easier because with the jump spell and the rooms that the mace throwers are in, you can jump over them mm-hmm. and drop down yep. on top of them in in the cadence of their throws. So that was a cool iteration on a theme that also utilized new abilities to make uh, previous nemesis of mine a lot easier yeah um, you so gotta play that more super mario brothers <laughs> and get good at dodging all the hammer brothers yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh there we go okay that's a that's a good note to end Medora Palace on. I think play play more Mario and you'll be better at this game. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to Death Mountain real quick. I know that we've already talked a lot about the difficulty spike here. Um, <clears throat> Josh, would you kind of give us the elevator pitch on this whole experience and, and why you think it is 
a unique and interesting part of this game and why it's so difficult? <laughs> why it's so difficult? The answer is Daris. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but um, but no, like, I mean, the elevator pitches that they, they send you into like a series of caves, right? Like it's just, uh, it, it's not a dungeon in the same way as a normal dungeon. It's all overworld exploration, but like there's 20 plus caves here and a whole bunch of doorways. And it is, it's essentially a maze where you just have to figure out the right doors to go in uh, that each lead to a combat gauntlet. Every one of these caves is a combat gauntlet. Uh, and they introduce uh, man, three or four new enemies probably that you just haven't seen at all. Um, in one case, I think there's an enemy you basically cannot kill at this point in the game. Uh, and, uh, and it's like every time you go into a cave, you don't know what you're about to walk into at all. Like they're not necessarily all the same kind of theme. Uh, and, uh, and just because of the nature of it, just being a maze without a map, uh, yeah, like you don't even really know why you're here. Right. Uh, I, there might be a townsperson or something that says, Oh yeah, there's a hammer in the mountains. <laughs> But but you don't really know why you're here, which cave you're trying to get to. Uh, like a lot of people, I've seen people play this and not realize that Spectacle Rock is a cave. They just get to the end and they're like, what was that about? And then they go off to the shortcut back off to the east side of the island and they totally miss it. Totally miss it. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was um, the thing. Matt was actually, when he was playing through this, and he got towards the end, like he was he was over at Spectacle Rock. He got the hammer, and he was like on his perma one hit death, you know, mm-hmm. phase of this whole thing. And uh, I was sitting next to him on the couch, and he's like, "I think I'm just going to take the game over and get sent back to like North Castle because I don't want to go back through all that again." Um, I was like, "No, no, 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 hold on, hold on. There is an easy and quick way out of this area, you yeah. know." Um, There's and- still Dara's involved. <laughs> There are, there are, but you don't have to re- yes. go through the maze again, which is nice at least. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Lyndon saved me from exiting without getting the, uh, the magic potion, uh, upgrade. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt a little bad. I was like, man, I don't want to spoil everything. So I'm not going to tell you all about that, but I'm like, man, I wonder if they're just going to leave and not, mm. not get it. No, I, we both got it. Um, I, I will say, so that brings us kind of to the item that we get in Death Mountain, which is the hammer. You mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Josh, this is an item that we, that recurs throughout the rest of the Zelda series. And, um, I do think on the one hand that it's interesting to get an item that is usable by the overworld version of Link, you know, um, yep. that's fun. I do find myself wishing that this hammer had combat utility in side-scrolling areas as well. Mm-hmm. How would they do that? I have no idea. There's not enough buttons is the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's like, the whole thing. Is like, I, I, I say that half-jokingly. Like uh, Other games, like no, I keep mentioning Castlevania, notably Castlevania, uh, used like button inputs, like where you push up and B to use an alternate item. Uh, they could have done something like that. Um, but... Yeah, it's just that I think that's really the bottom line is like there's only two buttons. 
But even and like that is true. But even the game before this one, you know, we had an arsenal in The Legend of Zelda mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we had a menu screen where we could select different things. And I know yep. that I know that we have spells in this game and that's a big part of the whole flow of combat and the economy of magic and points and all that. Um, and so I'm not saying that there's nothing analogous to that in this game, but I don't see why it couldn't have been both. Like, I don't understand why it would be impossible to have a boomerang mm-hmm. in this game. Well, and or, especially because the spells are tied to the select button, right? So it's mm-hmm. not even taking up a button space. I guess the second button they mapped for jump. So like that was kind of the, the limiting factor, I guess. But uh, yeah, I th- that's one thing I am missing right now in this game is like not having a boomerang or a bow and arrow or bombs. And I'm just like, I, I, I find myself sorely missing those uh, tried and true items that are that we're so used to from every other Zelda game that we've ever played. Yeah, the game is definitely very focused on the sword combat uh, and like establishing the sword combat of the series. Uh, but it is it's, it's one of those things where it's like we can speculate uh, forever. It's like, well, was it because of buttons? Like, were they inspired by another game that just was like this? But it's like, it's so hard to put yourself in their mindset of like, why would they make these decisions? Um, You know, and and then the bottom line could just be that it was just all experimental and that they like the idea of having an ongoing video game series franchise was not really a thing yet. Um, And there was no expectation that if you made four games and called them all the same thing that they all needed to be the same kind of game. And so they just were selling a brand more than they were selling a specific kind of experience. Yeah. And obviously hindsight is 2020 and we can, we can see yeah. that we can see that very clearly now. And I think, you know, for that reason, it makes sense. But I think to me, Zelda two will always feel a bit more like a, uh, a bit of an archaic experiment in mm-hmm. the series um, than, than anything else with, with some notable exceptions. It, it is one like it is, it is a, an archaic experiment. Um, I mean, that's part of why, like I, I, I very much like niche weird games <laughs> um, uh, like Zelda two is not the only one. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, like it, it's very experimental uh, I do think it laid a lot of important foundations for the series. Like, um, uh, like I, I get a little bit, uh, I get a little bit iffy and, uh, and start debating with people when they say they really need to remake Zelda two, right? They got to remake it. They got to make it like a normal Zelda game and retell the story. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't think that should happen. Like, I, I think that despite its experimentalness and weirdness, like, I think if you take it away from Zelda history, then the Zelda series is totally different. I will counter that by saying that I would absolutely play a Switch remake of Zelda 2 in the format that it's currently in with some Metroid-inspired upgrades to movement and combat. Um, I, I think if you're – like if you're – if if you have like – I don't know, like – slide for instance if you like if you have more movement options if it's a little bit less clunky and if the inventory is expanded just a little bit i I think that there's actually a lot of room to have a modern take on this game that is um 
you know, a little bit less frustrating to play and has the trappings of other modern versions of this kind of game. You know, we talked about Shovel Knight last week, and mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that is the kind of game that had a lot of um, a lot of expansion on the core gameplay that we see here. And I think that this would never happen because Nintendo knows that this is probably the most niche of all Zelda games. But like I can see an upgraded version of this game that's got some more uh, spit and polish behind it. That is actually very fun. Yeah. And to back up for a second, what I was referring to there are people that want a top like they want to wipe away everything about Zelda 2 and make no. a link to no, the no, past no, 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 no. a link to the a link to the past again but tell the Zelda 2 story nope like no. that and that I don't think should happen as far like depending on which day you ask me I might I might be more receptive to a a more modest in this correct style with quality of life improvements and some extra sword abilities or whatever kind of upgrade some days I think it sounds cool and some days I'm like I think they would just ruin it <laughs> Yeah. So, well, but yeah, no, that uh, I, I, they could do that. I think I also said I didn't really I told you. I think I, I didn't really want Zelda One remade either. Um, and it is. I just I, I see these games as like the foundation of the series, and it's like I don't care if they they can explore every idea they did in this game and just make a new game, right? Yeah. I, I just don't know if I really want them to call it a remake of this game. Yeah, I, I don't think that – I think you have to stand by your product, right? Even if your product was a, a product of its time, which I think Zelda 2 can definitely be classified as that, as an experiment on you know, what does the Zelda franchise look like in, in, before it was even a franchise. So I, I don't think that a, a total bones-up rewrite of the entire game makes sense because I think it would spoil – what it is and like sure maybe it's not the most beloved game maybe it's in many in many ways it is one of the least beloved games but like it it was as we have said specifically you josh made a lot of good points about things that were explored within this game that carried over into all of the games that we have now to totally wipe that away and like go back to the drawing board on it and just tell the same story is would really be kind of tragic in some ways agreed all right, y'all, we're creeping up on two hours, so we're going to do part four and five as the lightning round, which is kind of what we've been doing in recent weeks. Let's get into part four real quick, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention. Matt, did you go off the beaten path in any way this week? Yeah, I did. I uh, I went and explored quite a few caves, especially after I got the hammer. I went into some of the one-off caves that you can find, found... Um, Another heart container, found a, a magic container, found the water of life, um, started kind of exploring some other uh, far-flung reaches. Um, I went over into Mido Town. The, it's like on the coast, but I didn't really do much there. I kind of got the impression that it was probably for later in the game. So I just kind of went and said, oh, this is neat, and uh, walked through it to visited one of the very nice village ladies who healed me fully and talked to the the nice village sage who refilled my refilled my magic um yeah i that was kind of really all that i did uh, on top of the doll that i found yeah that, that that's pretty much the breadth and width of my bloopy trails as well um is there any kind of like side shenanigans that we didn't talk about that you think is worth mentioning josh i mean not especially like the doll is interesting uh, 
there are only a handful of those in the game and they don't respawn. Uh, so uh, they are extra lives, right? But it's not like a permanent extra life upgrade. You don't get to start with four lives from now on. You just got four lives that one time. Uh, and so like, I don't even usually bother going to get them anymore <laughs> because I know that, well, I'm just going to lose it and then it's kind of pointless anyway. Uh, but uh, some people like to save them all for like the last level or something. Um, and so, yeah, they're an interesting, just kind of weirdness about the game. Hmm. Uh, I will, I will mention just cause, uh, Matt said that he went to Mido. Um, Mido's just interesting on its own because there's no sage in Ocarina of Time named Mido. There is a Kokiri. Yes, there is. Uh, and in, uh, it, it's thought often that Mido was supposed to be a sage or uh, perhaps at some point in the, in the development uh, because we know that we know that the dungeons changed and what the sages stood for kind of changed. Like there was a wind dungeon, which isn't really a thing. Uh, And so like things in Ocarina of Time changed in development. uh, And it's, it's interesting that of all the characters Mido had a town in Zelda two and got a character in Ocarina of Time, uh, but is not a sage. Yeah, it's a good call out. Let's get into part five, which is Z targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I'm going to go first. Uh, I am going to choose for my Z targeting this week, the birth of a meme. And that is, of course, the beloved character. I am error who you encounter in Ruto Town. <laughs> yeah, he was interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, something that's been made into 100 t-shirts. Um, I, just, I thought it was so funny because I know that there's like a lot of a lot of lore around this NPC of like, oh, well, was it a translation issue or was it a joke or what's the deal here? And I'm going to choose a different interpretation and choose to believe that the I am error guy is just a very introspective dude who lives alone in his home, uh, who's pondering the question of whether or not he himself is a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I here? Uh, What does it mean? He's the, he's the first uh, esoteric character. Yeah. Poor guy. I I choose to believe that his life is worth living. And I think that uh, he's perfect just the way he is. There you go. Yeah. Uh, We, we stand, uh, error self guy. Love. Yeah, we, <laughs> we stand self love for all, including <laughs> error guy. <laughs> um, uh, Josh, I'll let you go next because I need to think about this for a second. No, I, I will comment on error for a second to say that uh, there is more to error than you got today. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully, I'm not messing up what Matt's going to talk about. But uh, the name error uh, kind of has a counterpart in Bagu. Uh, that the way the way Zelda Wiki puts it is that Bagu is the Japanese transliteration of the word bug, like a computer bug. <laughs> uh, so they are bug and error, um, and so they kind of go together uh, in that way. Uh, but I'm just I'm going to point out the red deras, uh, which I know we mentioned, but then we also uh, I feel like our whole most of our Death Mountain discussion kind of went off on tangents. Uh, so yeah, the Red Deras of Death Mountain is is going to be my pick. That uh, they're they're the enemies that that just make people quit this game. Um, 
It's uh, it's an enemy that even now I don't have the timing down on jumping over those dumb axes. Uh, uh, like the way that I like to describe it, it feels like their axes have a rhythm to them, but then there'll be like two throws in a row where the rhythm is off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like they are on a looping animation that both starts and ends with a throw. And so when the animation loops, you get two throws in a row. Uh, and uh, so I'm sure you can learn it if you sit there and try. Uh, but I still struggle fighting them. I mean, I, I've played this game like eight or ten times now at this point. Um, and <laughs> and so, yeah, that's uh, the enemy that is maybe maybe it's not the most frustrating enemy in the game but it is the enemy that makes the most people quit. Yeah, I was close. Yeah, I I, I was close. I'll give you that. (laughs) Uh, Not that I would ever quit because the pod must go on, but um, yeah. Oof. Red Daras. May they RSVP. (laughs) May may they die swiftly. (laughs) Very. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So my Z-targeting pick is going to be the friendly sleepy blot. Uh, blots are of course just trash mobs that you fight throughout most of the game I assume probably all of the game and uh, this purple guy is just hanging out in a town sound asleep and apparently according to what Josh has just told me earlier in the episode uh, he is a a friendly blot that will even give you advice so I don't know if he just like turned tail on Ganon or if he was maybe like, uh, like any of the characters in Link to the Past who uh, are like who got turned into a monster, but was a, a person at one point. I don't know what his deal is, but I appreciate a, a friendly blot who just wants to take a nap. And uh, I can totally relate to that on a daily basis. <laughs> yep. Maybe he's Bagu's pet. Hey, I think that that is a good headcanon. It's all a happy family together. Error guy, Bagu, and that. And, and friendly blot. <laughs> friendly blot. Yeah. <laughs> They're all one happy family together. I like that. That's good headcanon. All right, well, let's move into part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. So we have come to the second chapter of uh, Adventure of Link, which has unanimously by all three of us been described as one of the most frustrating experiences of a video game and one that has infamously caused countless numbers of individuals to quit this game for good before even getting into like 80 percent of the game. So uh We can hold our heads high that we have tackled Death Mountain, uh, gotten the hammer, and along the way also beat the Second Palace. Uh, We met some interesting characters along the way in the form of Bagu, Error Man, the Blot, uh, and gotten some new useful spells. The Life Spell will be a lifesaver. Hey! Hey! (laughs) Throughout the rest of the game. And uh, just looking forward to continuing our exploration and our... uh, advancement in skill as we tackle this uh the most unique of all zelda titles there you go you always do it so well matt oh thank you that wraps up the sacred realms rundown for this week we will be back next week with another installment of the sacred realms rundown we'll be tackling more dungeons it's going to be a great time josh thank you so much for coming on i know we're going to have you on again before we're done with this game we'll catch up with you and um we'll kind of give you our thoughts on sort of where we land with all of these things as they kind of evolve and get to more you know complex parts of this gameplay experience um but yeah as always it was a really fun discussion and uh, we really appreciate you being willing to come on and hash it out with us 
Yeah, no, it's fun. I, I'm going to be playing along with you all. Like I, I started this when last week's episode came out and played up to this point. And so I, I follow along. I'm just going to do the two dungeons every week like I'm supposed to. And uh, and I'll be on Discord critiquing everything you say. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the Discord is for. That's why we have it. Uh, and also a great reminder that honestly, like, for as much as we discuss in these episodes, the discussion does continue on our Discord channel. It's hopping on a daily basis. There's been a lot of really interesting ground covered. Um, Josh has been very active ever since we started this game and honestly has been very active the whole time, um, as are a lot of other people, other recurring guests, Max, Cody. They uh, they all are there with uh, with a certain amount of regularity. So definitely get in on that discord channel action because um yeah there's some there's some really great stuff there and i can't recommend it enough josh do you want to go ahead and uh give your social tags real quick so that people know where to find you oh yeah so uh uh the main social place you can find me i'm on twitter uh i am watcher joshua uh on twitter um and then of course uh most of the stuff i do is at zeldauniverse.net uh where of course we're doing Tears of the Kingdom stuff. I got a whole big button on the front page just to find everything we're doing for Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, so you can go there and rewatch all the trailers or look at all the screenshots or find every speculation article that we are publishing. Excellent. Definitely uh, keep it locked over there because as we said at the top of the show, there's going to be um, a lot of material kind of coming out of Zelda universe over the next few months. And as we get closer to the release of Tears of the Kingdom. And then if Tears of the Kingdom is anything like Breath of the Wild, people will be discovering crazy things within that game on a daily basis for months and years to come. So, Oh yeah, we're still discovering things in other not Breath of the Wild games. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be discovering things in Breath of the Wild for the next 20 plus years. Yep, sounds about right to me. Well, I think that that'll about do it for this week. Matt, are you ready to get out of here? I am ready. Let's do it. Awesome. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash Sacred Realms pod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on The Adventure of Link Chapter 3, which is covering, I believe, Island Palace and Maze Island Palace. Does that sound right, Josh? Yes, that sounds right. Yes. Awesome. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Adventure of Link can be played in a variety of places. It can be played on the original NES. It can be played on a variety of eShops. It can be played on the Nintendo NES Mini. And it can be played on the Nintendo Switch NES Online service, which is the version that Matt and I are playing and frequently rewinding. Absolutely. In the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch you all next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameShops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.